Welcome to episode three of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi-weekly guide to the world of tech, media, and everything in between. I'm your host, Aviva Rumani. We hope you enjoyed our first two episodes featuring RA's chat with Scooter Braun. Here's what's on tap today. First, we'll feature part one of a discussion with our CEO, RA, and world-renowned author, anchor, and columnist for the New York Times and Dealbook, Mr. Andrew Ross Sorkin. Jeremy Adam is back with a brand new quiz question. As always, stay tuned to the end to see if you got it right. Next, we'll hear from Lion Tree's Leslie Mallon, who will provide some visibility into the public markets. This week, we're diving into the themes around e-commerce and the details of the FCC's Spectrum auction. And we'll conclude with Kindling, our segment dedicated to the trends we're exploring in Lion Tree growth, led by Austin Cryden. Our focus this week is on millennials and their apparent complacency regarding privacy and security online. Here we go. You know him from CNBC's Squawk Box, from his bestseller, Too Big to Fail, and of course, the TV show Billions. Please enjoy part one of RA's chat with Andrew Ross Sorkin featuring the four questions. Hi, everyone. It's REA back again, and I'm thrilled to welcome our next guest, Andrew Ross Sorkin, to this latest installment of KindredCast. Thanks for being here. Thank you. This is fun. Good this to turn the tables. <laughs> We're going to have a nice conversation. You can just relax and uh, be the guest. I don't know how relaxing that is. <laughs> well, as many of you know, Andrew is a financial columnist for The New York Times and the co-anchor of CNBC's Squawk Box. Um, he's also the editor-at-large of Dealbook, one of the most highly regarded daily newspapers, which he founded within The Times in 2001. Uh, Andrew is the author of the book Too Big to Fail, as everyone knows, which spent more than six months on the New York Times bestseller list. And uh, Andrew co-produced an HBO adaptation of the book, which was nominated for 11 Emmy Awards. And of course, he's also the co-creator and executive producer of the Showtime drama series Billions, starring Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis. Andrew, it's a pleasure to speak with you today, and thank you for joining us for our new installment of KinCast. I'm, I'm excited about it. This is very cool that you're doing this. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we always get started with the KindredCast four questions. So I'm going to pick a few and see what you think. As you obviously had a multi-pronged, diverse career, what was the catalyst for your choosing your professional path? I imagine my answer is going to be like everybody else's by accident, which is really the true answer. I always had a passion about the media industry, and so I always wanted to be part of the media industry, and I always had a passion about business and entrepreneurship. I didn't necessarily think I was going to be a journalist, though. I don't I never thought I was a natural writer. I have visions of people like Michael Lewis, you know, playing the keyboard like a piano. I'm somebody who has always hunted and pecked at the keyboard and uh, stressed out and, and wanting to, you know, go get a coffee to procrastinate. So I didn't think I would necessarily do this. But very early on, when I was 18 years old, I uh, lucked like everything else. I lucked into something, which is I, I did pound on the door a lot to get um, – an internship at the New York Times when they didn't really have internships for kids that age. And um, I convinced the advertising columnist to let me in the building. I used to uh, stand there in the morning and get a visitor pass. I'd go every morning. I wasn't even supposed to really be in the building. And I would Xerox and staple for him. It was the best job of my life. But anyway, um, I happened to be there in the building. And uh, there was a woman who had no idea how old I was. She overheard me talking about this thing called the Internet. Back when we would write, you know, modem, comma, a device that transmits data over a phone line. And uh, she assigned me a story, and that's how this all began. And the internet has actually taken off. Shockingly so. <laughs> uh, okay, what tools do you use, mental or otherwise, in moments of crisis? 
whether you're interviewing someone on the air or thinking about a, a topic to write about or a show or you know solving a world problem, what's your methodology? What's my methodology? A tool? Will you say a tool? In what regard? Can I can I get a definition? Sure. A, you can call a friend. <laughs> I call a friend. <laughs> Lifeline. <laughs> well, if you get stuck yeah. or if you have to deal with elements of failure or you are uh, trying to navigate a puzzle or problem – you know, what is your device? You know, what do you what do you do to solve those issues? My wife would tell you that my my brain is like a prison, um, so I think that I I think I deal unfortunately with failure probably as badly as anybody else. But I'm somebody constantly going through every possible permutation of whatever the issue is and trying to figure out what is the angle out or how are we going to fix this or what are we going to do. I don't know if I have a particular tool there there are specific things i do in certain instances during during television interviews if the interview is going terribly and the guest is just not playing along you can tell they don't want to be there they're just not interested instead of asking them whatever was on the list i i try to make it very personal all of a sudden and i i try to make it about them and even if it has nothing to do with the issue just to get them to relax i always say to myself that the 10 minutes or five minutes I have with somebody prior to the interview are arguably more important than the time I have with them during the interview. The interview is either going to work or not in part because of whatever place we can get the person to beforehand. It's hard to get them to this great place during. And unfortunately, I think also on television, you don't have the benefit of time. You know, when you're writing an article, we could spend an hour together and I could be waiting for that one quote and I could waste a lot of time getting there and not really worry about it. But on television, I have to somehow cut to the quick within the first 30 seconds. And so part of it is about trying to establish some kind of relationship with the other person and comfort level so that they hopefully melt right in front of you. You do it very well. What's the best business advice you've ever been given and by whom? Best business advice that I've ever been given and by whom? Persistence matters more than talent by a square mile. The person who doesn't give up and is more passionate about the issue is always going to win over the person who ostensibly you think is smarter. There's a distinction also between uh, a talent and a gift. There are certain people you'll meet who can learn talents. There are other people you meet who are truly gifted. And I think those are two very different things. And the last thing... Which which one are you? I think I'm lucky. I was given some kind of gift along the way, maybe to be persistent, frankly. I can't claim to have the most talent in the room, but I do think that I, in certain cases, am probably the most oftentimes very persistent about how I approach these things. I'm curious what you think about this. You know, we've been blessed in terms of spending a lot of time with really successful people, people who have shot the moon, won the game in the biggest way possible. And I always think to myself, what is it that is similar about these people. And oddly enough, one of the things I always find is that all of them have something to prove. Um, it almost be, may be a remarkable, maybe even surprising, almost insecurity about themselves. But they're trying to prove something to somebody. They're, they're, maybe it's their mother. But they, no, really. Maybe it's their mother. Maybe it's their uh, colleagues or their peers, but they still have something to prove. And they're trying to get to the top of this mountain. And then once they get to the top of the mountain, then they have to try to stay there and prove that it's not a fluke. I think there is this drive to continue to move and build and progress, right? 
But then to what end? What is your ultimate objective, right? What's your peace? That, that is the existential question we all, we all deal with. Mm-hmm. So another question that deals with many parts of our business, because you're focused in, in some ways on the media industry, you're focused on the financial markets, you're focused on journalism. And in this day and age, I would assume someone like you, and you in particular, have, has to be articulate and astute at both politics uh, and also the uh, media industry and its evolving nature with technology, and also really the understanding of the financial markets overall. And all these businesses are evolving, if you can call them businesses, in a very fast-paced way. So what's the future of this industry? Let's say journalism, for example. How is it evolving over the next 10 years? Look, I'm a long-term bull on the newspaper industry, maybe not in the traditional context of the newspaper itself, but I think that the model has actually evolved now to a point where we're finally at a tipping point in terms of meaningfully moving to a subscription-based model that actually works. And so I happen to think that there's going to be a number of newspaper companies and others who are going to evolve the newspaper um, and subscription model. By the way, to some degree, not that the newspaper industry was ripping off the model of Netflix. Maybe it was that Netflix was ripping off the original model of the newspaper industry. But we're now finally finding an equilibrium and balance in terms of how much advertising revenue really is going to make sense. Whether, by the way, what's going to happen to the advertising business? That's the real question, Mark, for all of this, which is to say, can, will, can and will advertising support media in the way that it used to? I happen to think not, in part because I think that the one thing that's shifted in the digital world is now that you can actually count this stuff. And I'm, by the way, I'm not even sure the digital guys know how to count it properly. I think there's a whole larger question about that. But Digital to, guys being, being who? The Facebooks and Google of the world. But to the extent that they can and should be able to, I think we're all realizing that effectively all of us have been overcharging everybody for everything because we couldn't pinpoint anything but it really should get quite efficient. But once it gets efficient, clearly the economics are not going to be good for, for anybody, and therefore we're going to move to this, this subscription model. I think, and I think it's going to work. For, not for everybody, but I think for, for, for a large portion. And, when, and you talk about the resurgence of the newspaper. Obviously, you're talking about the digital format. The digital format. I do think there will be a print publication for a very long time. I think over time it becomes a premium product, though. I mean, a truly a premium product. There are going to be certain people who will pay through the nose because they desperately want to hold on to the physical newspaper. So that, that'll be, if you can carry around this piece of paper and fold it up at your convenience and read it again when you want to and take it with you, that'll be the premium pricing. That'll be the premium pricing, and that will be, it, I think it almost may be iconic. I think it might be a fashion item for certain people over time. But I, in terms of how people consume news on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, on a minute-by-minute minute basis, clearly it'll be their phone or uh, or the computers or other devices. Well, how do you think the New York Times overall has dealt with the digital transition? They get a lot of accolades for being one of the first movers into digital. And how has that happened? And um, do you think that over the next few years is going to evolve differently? Well, I think we were early, and that was very important in terms of the transition. We also held on longer than others. And by the way, I was wrong on this. We held on to being a free advertising-based business for a very long time, in part because there were always anxieties about whether the subscription business would actually work. And we saw it work with the Wall Street Journal, but just about everybody else struggled at the time. And I will admit, I, I was somebody who was very skeptical of whether you could actually get people to pay. I was anxious because I was looking around and thinking to myself, 
that our, our reader is going to say that this article that we have is similar to or is too similar to a story that you could get for free on Yahoo. And so that that was always the debate. I have been pleasantly surprised about um, the loyalty that readers have had. And also, I think I have a deeper appreciation now for the way readers um, connect with the news and connect with certain types of stories. And if you can actually provide them truly unique, exclusive insights and news, that people will actually pay for that. And now the New York Times is getting into podcasting themselves. Getting into podcasting, um, getting into video. The traditional sort of word-based businesses are now becoming video-based businesses to some degree. And the traditional video guys are all trying to effectively create their own online newspapers. So if you look at CNBC, for example, my other uh, parent, if you will, we're in the video business. But if you really go online, CNBC.com now, not only does it have a lot of video, it has articles that compete with the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Yeah, I actually think the CNBC Instagram feed is one of the best. They do a spectacular job. My hat's off to them. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, I agree. So let's talk about the financial markets a little bit. Yep. Since you wrote the book, Too Big to Fail, about the 2008 financial crisis, what's changed? Have we learned anything about how to deal with these risk factors that are unforeseen and these calamities? Have there been lessons learned? So I think there have been lessons learned. It's funny because there's sort of a real strange pendulum Two or three years after the financial crisis, I probably would have told you that nothing had changed. The more I think about it now, things have profoundly changed. I think if you were to look at the investment banks today, they're wholly different than they were almost a decade ago now. I mean, it's just it's just a completely and utterly different business. You have your business. There are boutiques all over the place. But look at your success or look at the success of Blackstone, for example. They've become almost as important, if not more important, than any of the investment banks on Wall Street now. So I think Wall Street unto itself has fundamentally changed. And I don't worry about a financial crisis emanating from the banks in the way that I used to. Given the capital requirements, you know, people spend so much time talking about Dodd-Frank and all these laws. To me, that's almost a sideshow to the idea that these banks now have so much capital. And by the way, people complain that you can get a loan from a bank for a very long time, in part because that's what we were trying to do. But now that they have so much capital, I can't see or foresee a financial crisis that emanates from the straight-up traditional Wall Street banks the way we used to. Am I worried about the shadow banks and where a lot of the risk has gone? Sure. Do I think that there could be a problem? Sure. But I think that looks much more like a, a long-term capital crisis than I do 2008. And I think those are not even in, in the same league in terms of the comparability of what a crisis looks like. But you think that the market corrected itself, or do you think it was government-imposed? I mean, where do you give the credit for now having much more of a healthy environment? I actually give the credit to the uh, Federal Reserve, oddly enough, not even Dodd-Frank. I do think that regulators had a huge uh, piece of this, I mean, in terms of the role that they played. I truly put most of it on the capital, because to me, the capital requirement does everything. It changes how profitable you can be, changes compensation schemes. As a result, structurally, because of those things— Talented people have left and gone on to, if they want to take risks, to do it in different places. And so I do think it's a very different place today, in a good way. Having said that, by the way, we may, in this political climate we're in, we may revert all of the stuff. And of course, you know, memories are very short on Wall Street. So we could be back in the soup sooner or later, but who knows? Jeremy Adam has today's KinCast quiz question. On April 19th, it was announced that PetSmart, the nation's largest pet supplies retailer, 
agreed to acquire Chewy.com, the market's number one online retailer. Terms of the transaction were not disclosed, but several sources reported an estimated deal value of $3.35 billion, which would make it the largest e-commerce acquisition in history. In the past 12 months, which of the following traditional consumer retail companies neither acquired nor invested in an e-commerce business? A. Unilever B. Target C. Whole Foods or D. Walmart Let's now check in with Leslie Mallon to get some insight on the public markets. Hi, this is Leslie Mallon. I head Liontree's public markets business, and here are the TMT quick hits. Two key themes have been front and center. Number one, what is next post the long-awaited wireless incentive auction? One could argue there are more questions than answers. Number two, we are likely to see traditional retailers buying up e-commerce assets at a faster clip from here. Starting with the incentive auction, versus initial expectations, the process took a lot longer and demand levels were not as significant. But there were still some surprises regarding the details on who spent what. While T-Mobile bought the largest chunk of Spectrum at $8 billion, they were expected to be a big spender. But Dish, on the other hand, spending the second most at $6 billion, took the street by surprise. This led to the knee-jerk reaction that a sale of the company is now less likely, which put pressure on Dish shares. Do they have more aspiration to build instead? Comcast bought less than expected at $1.7 billion and only bought Spectrum in region. The company has been talking about a measured approach to their wireless strategy, so this level of spend could be viewed as consistent. But won't they need a national solution over time? Does this mean that they are more likely to buy a wireless asset down the road? And lastly, Verizon buying zero Spectrum was a surprise. While expectations were not high, they were not for zero. Does Verizon really feel like they are in a good position regarding low-band Spectrum? Are they saving the money for purchasing different Spectrum? Verizon is reportedly evaluating topping AT&T's bid for straight path. So maybe that is why they spent less. Overall, like I said, more questions than answers. Regarding retail, I think we could be on the cusp of a huge ramp in brand consolidation in and of itself, but also a ramp in the number of e-commerce acquisitions made by traditional retailers. Both traditional retailers and e-commerce need this to happen. Why do I say this? First, there are too many retail brands out there, kind of like there are too many cable networks. The number of retail brands needs to be consolidated. Second, we've seen a sharp acceleration in store closings year to date. Retailers are not moving fast enough to reposition the model. They need to get more aggressive with their e-commerce efforts. PetSmart clearly is getting more aggressive with recently announced acquisition of Chewy.com for over $3 billion. And Walmart is reportedly mulling yet another e-commerce acquisition. All of this activity will likely push others to follow. Lastly, scale is king in e-commerce, which is why Amazon is eating everyone's lunch. Small e-commerce companies are having a tough time competing and need to be involved in consolidation or M&A as well. Bottom line, expect more deals in the space to rationalize the market. Which brings us to our fact of the day. One week into YouTube TV's launch, AdAge reported 150,000 smartphone and tablet downloads. Google has not confirmed this number, but that is pretty strong for seven days. 
We'll have to see if the trajectory holds. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next time with some more quick hits. Now we'll hear from Austin with this week's Kindling. It's no secret that cybersecurity is a topic of growing importance in this era of ever-expanding connectivity. Look no further than our recent election, or the fact that the majority of Americans, 64%, have directly experienced some form of data theft or fraud, with roughly half feeling that their personal information is actually less secure now than it was five years ago, according to Pew Research. Still, in our quest for convenience and connectivity, we continue to store our most valuable and private information in a cloud, one which we have no control over. As aware as we are of this threat, only 12% of American internet users actually deploy some sort of password management software, and only a quarter of those say it's their primary technique for safeguarding their personal information. With 86% of American internet users using memorization for their password management, which is actually one of the least secure methods. So is the juice really worth the squeeze in the digital world? My fellow millennials are willing to risk it, especially as compared to Gen X and baby boomers. A survey by Civic Science found that millennial respondents are much less likely than Gen Xers and baby boomers to be very concerned about their consumer privacy with 34% of millennials versus 46% and 53% for Gen Xers and baby boomers, respectively. Perhaps that's why two-thirds of millennials prefer digital shopping versus in-store. They're not that bothered about their info being swiped. And e-commerce has a lot of headroom in the U.S. It only accounted for 8% of total retail sales in 2016, according to the Census Bureau. This looks like it will soon change, though, as 92 million millennials, which comprise the largest ever U.S. generation, are reaching their prime working and spending years. E-commerce, therefore, should undoubtedly skyrocket. They're also more willing to swap personal data in exchange for benefits or rewards. 40% of millennials do so versus 25% of the rest of the internet population, according to eMarketer. Despite millennials' strong presence on social platforms, we millennials still prefer email marketing. eMarketer says that more than 50% say that email is the primary influence for making a purchase from a retailer's website. The confluence of these factors, increased concern about cybersecurity and safeguarding personal information, combined with an impending explosion in e-commerce, implies that we should see continued public and private sector investment into these businesses for the foreseeable future. For instance, in 2016, $2.3 billion of venture capital was invested into the cybersecurity space alone, according to PitchBook. And on the e-commerce side, expect to see more deals like PetSmart's $3.5 billion purchase of Chewy.com and Walmart's recent acquisitions of Bonobos and Jet.com. Thanks for listening to this week's Kindling. So let's see if you got our quiz question correct. Take it away, Jeremy. In the past 12 months, which of the following traditional consumer retail companies neither acquired nor invested in an e-commerce business? A. Unilever. B. Target, C. Whole Foods, or D. Walmart? And the answer is B. Target. Over the past year, we've seen traditional consumer and retail companies find new avenues of growth by buying and investing in e-commerce startups 
and emerging brands. Unilever acquired Dollar Shave Club for $1 billion in July 2016. Whole Foods participated in a $400 million Series D for Instacart in March 2017. And Walmart has made several acquisitions, including Jet.com for $3.3 billion, smaller sites such as Shoebuy, Moose Jaw, and ModCloth, and is reportedly close to acquiring men's clothing retail startup Bonobos for $300 million. That's it for the third episode of Kindred Cast. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, you can hear our show first through the Kindred app or subscribe to it on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Stay tuned in another two weeks for part two of Arya's discussion with Andrew Ross Sorkin. It's not to be missed. See you next time. Audiation.